Well, uh, like I mentioned, we'll be looking at verse 9 today, and we are taking our time to go through the prologue of John's gospel purposefully. And I, and I might uh, put this forward as part of an apologetic for that, that slowness. Um, you probably remember being in a class where uh, the, the professor or the teacher got up and they began introducing the course by passing out the syllabus. And maybe the syllabus was a little daunting and you, you get to the end of it and you think, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to pull this off. There's so much work to be done. Uh, but, but as you uh, go to that first class and the professor passes out the syllabus, something else that might also pass through your mind is, I wonder why we're taking our whole first class all this time to go through the syllabus in such detail. Maybe you've had one of those teachers where they just they take a huge chunk of time to go through all of these, all of these elements of, of what is going to uh, make up the class. And at first we wonder why they would do that. Why do they take so much time to do that? But then as we get into the course, we realize that that time was actually well spent because as they took that time to go through what to expect and what's coming and assignments and all of that, it actually prepares us well for the significance of the content of the course that's going to come. Without having had that, had that time to see where things are going, we might not have had the, the necessary overview in our own minds uh, to go forward fruitfully in our studies. And in a way, that's how we can think of John's prologue to his gospel, as a, kind of, as a kind of syllabus for what's to come. Because in the prologue, in these first 18 verses, John covers a great deal of what he's going to go through in much more detail as his gospel goes on. But he's giving us a little glimpses of what's to come, so that as we get into the significance of the content of what he's going to reveal to us about Jesus, we have some of these, some of these important truths already beginning to formulate in our minds. Uh, and we see that today, even as, as we consider some of, the, some of the truth that's going to be here. John's giving us uh, big pieces to have in place in order that uh, the rest of what he says about Jesus uh, will be, be ready to be properly uh, understood and taken in. And so that's part of why we're taking this time uh, to go relatively slowly through these first 18 verses. It's helping us to prepare for the bigness of the, of the greater detail that's yet to come. And in all honesty, another reason why we're going slow is because this is just such extraordinary truth. It's just such amazing truth that's here about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All of these glorious truths about Jesus, we just don't want to go so quickly through them that we miss the, the grandeur that's here. We, we, we love, like a, like a good meal, we love to sit and appreciate the food of the truth that's here before us. Uh, so that's what we're going to do today. Take it for what it is. It's my apologetic for doing one verse, but that's what we're going to do. Verse 9. If you look at verse 9, um, I'll, just, I'll just read it again so we have it fresh in our minds. Uh, they were told the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Uh, so light, as we know from the verses that have come before this, uh, John uses the term light to refer to the life that is intrinsic in Christ himself as the one through whom the world has been made and the one through whom the world continues to be sustained. So back in verse 4, for example, we read that in Him, so in Christ, was life, and that life was the light of humanity. That There is nothing that's been made which has been made apart from Christ, verse 3, so that that light of Christ which animates our existence, that's His power by which we, as Paul will say in Acts 17, live and move and have our being. And now in verse 9, John takes his introduction to Jesus from, from the heights of heaven and the recesses of eternity as he's speaking about how, how this light is the life of humanity as it's been created by the eternal 
word, Christ, from the outside of space and time. Christ is made and now sustains everything. But here John takes that, that understanding of Christ as the light of life, and he speaks about how that light entered into the reality of the world that's been made. And as we consider this truth, we, we can actually be greatly encouraged in what it means to understand that God's extraordinary purposes of grace have not just been to make the world through Jesus, but that Jesus himself would enter our world and minister to us the great grace that we need. Uh, so, so in that sense, we have this light from the outside now coming inside, uh, which John will make very clear by the time we get to verse 14, where he talks about the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Uh, but this morning, we have our first a taste of that as John speaks about the light uh, coming into the world. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to take verse 9 and, and, and piece it out and, and, and look at the significance that John uh, wants us to, to be able to meditate on here. And so uh, if you look at the first part of verse 9, the first thing we're going to see as John speaks of Christ coming into the world, the first thing we see is that John here refers to Jesus specifically as the true light. The true light. Um, so, so Christ is light. Uh, but now John is getting even more narrow. He's getting more specific and that it's not just that Christ is the light, but he's the true light. Uh, we left things last time with John the Apostle, who's the author of this gospel, speaking to us about John the Baptist. We always have to clarify between those two Johns in, in John's gospel. John the Apostle who wrote the gospel is not John the Baptist, who was just referenced in the previous verses. Uh, but John the Apostle was referencing John the Baptist, and he was telling us last time that while John came as a witness to the light, John was not the light. So, so we've already had some clarification going on as to the significance of the identity of Jesus. We saw how, how, how there's exclusivity with regard to Christ. Even John the Baptist, who in chapter 5 will be called a flame burning brightly. So, so John is witnessing, in a sense, as his own light to Christ. He's not the light, as John is defining things here. And that was important to distinguish because uh, whether it be in the first century, like we read about in Luke chapter 3, or whether it be in the third century, as we have with some historical details, there were some who were inordinately attached to John the Baptist, as if maybe he was the Messiah who'd come. But, but these things are clarified where John has said there's exclusivity here. Jesus is the light we're speaking about. It wasn't John. So he told us that last time. Um, and now, uh, John continues to make things even more clear as he dials in his statement about the exclusivity of Jesus further, where he calls him the true light. And, and as we get into John's gospel, we're going to recognize how John can make common terms, almost technical terms for his vo in his vocabulary at times. And we have that occurring here with the way he uses this word true, true light. Um, if we remember that the prologue, remember, it's like, a, it's like a syllabus on day one of class. And so John is starting to introduce us to, to themes that we're going to have to have in our minds as we go forward in our studies. And so, and so to be prepared, we need to say something about this true light statement that John is, is making here. Um, so just, just think through this with me. John's already told us that in Christ is life, and that life is the light of humanity. Um, and also, John has already told us that John the Baptist is not the light. So John has been distinguishing. And here, John isn't finished clarifying this light idea yet as he speaks about Christ as the true light. And, and one thing we can know about this term that's translated true here 
it, do, it does mean on the surface level exactly what we would expect it to mean in that it, in that it means genuine, right? It means to be distinct from false options. So, so this word is speaking to the, the realness and validity of Jesus as the light. So, so this does point to exclusivity again with regard to Jesus. Jesus is the genuine light. He's not, he's not a false light, but he's the light of life. Uh, and we remember how light and life are connected in John's gospel. Jesus is the one who brings genuine life to us, life that's actually everlasting and eternal and transcends even the boundaries of death. Uh, which is exactly what we need to have clear in our minds as we keep going in this gospel because we'll hear Jesus say things like uh, like he does in John 14 where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He is the true light who shines the life of salvation upon humanity genuinely, exclusively. Only in Christ is that kind of light found. So in that sense, Jesus is the true light. No one else ever shines with the power to reconcile sinful humanity with a holy God. No one else ever shines with the power to transform us and bring us from a place of darkness to a place of light, to a place of hope, to a place of everlasting peace. Jesus is the true light in that sense. And John's emphasizing that again, and we appreciate John's concern to make sure that's very clear for us. It's a necessary reminder. Um, in, in English folklore, uh, there's this idea of a will-o'-the-wisp. Have you, have you heard of this? Maybe you've run across this in reading. The will-o'-the-wisp, as, as the myths and stories go, uh, the will-o'-the-wisp is a kind, of, a kind of ghostly light that travelers may see at night, and, and they'll especially see this ghostly light when, when they're passing through scary places like marshes or swamps. And as the, as the stories go, this flickering light is said to appear, the will-o'-the-wisp appears, and, and as that pale light appears, it seems to be present to help guide travelers through these treacherous areas. Um, however, this flickering light in the stories, it ends up leading travelers to their destruction. So it's a, it's a will-o'-the-wisp. It, it originated in, in Latin where the name is translated as giddy light. It's a light that seems so happy and, and willing to help, but it actually uh, leaves people in a place of despair by the end. Uh, the end is, is downfall and destruction. So, so we've, we've got that kind of idea just in, in, our, in our literature. It transcends genres of literature. Uh, but but as, we're, as we're being prepared here by John to consider well the identity and mission of Jesus Christ, at the end of the day, John is wanting us to, to see very clearly that Jesus is not a will-o'-the-wisp kind of light, even though we're surrounded by those kinds of things. He wants us to see that Jesus is the true light. We're, we're surrounded in our own day by many, uh, by many optional lights, many things that come and they may glow brightly, they may even bring a, a giddy flame, if you like, uh, that says follow along in this way and as you go in this way, surely everything is going to be okay. Uh, these things can shine in front of us. Maybe it's a, a certain worldview that's presented or maybe it's that new book that we just must read because it's really going to bring us to that place of peace that we've been longing for. Now, maybe it's even a person who promises, you know, that by, by being with them or by following them, the, the, the treachery we dread or the, or the danger we face or the sorrow we've experienced, it's all going to be relieved. They're going to bring us this kind of light and life. But we know, we know those things ultimately don't prove to be true light. They're will-o'-the-wisps. They appear for a time when we're needy, but they don't actually guide us to safety like they promise. 
And as we come to consider Jesus, John wants us to reflect on this, on this truth that he's telling us about Christ. Jesus isn't a false light. Jesus is a true light. He's not a, a light that only shines brightly for a little while and then flames out, not leaving us in the place of life like he promised, but instead he is genuine and brings us the life that he promises without, without uh, leading us astray. Uh, so he's the one who comes with this kind of genuine light. And we know from earlier that darkness cannot overcome. It's a victorious kind of light. Um, and, and so in that way, as verse 9 begins, it, be, it begins with the call back. John is, is calling us back, maybe from, from those will-o'-the-wisps kind of lights to a true light. He, he's saying, consider this one who comes and genuinely possesses the kind of, the kind of restorative, transformative hope-giving power that we feel ourselves to need so badly. And maybe, maybe you need that call back this morning. We need this at various times in our Christian life. Maybe you've been, you've been trusting in Jesus, but there's been a temptation lately to add in some extra lights. Uh, there's so many that seem to shine in, in just the right ways and at just the right time. They're attractive lights. They promise to help us down the path. And John says to us, be careful. Because while we know that the, that the Lord Jesus works through many graces in this world, there is only one ultimate source of life, and it's found in Christ as we yield to Him. He is the genuine light. So there's a sense in which true here means, means genuine. It means exactly what it seems to mean upon a cursory reading as we're thinking about the light of life that's found in Jesus. True means genuine in, in John's gospel. But that's not the only way this term translated true is used by John. It's not the only way, because while we can understand Christ as the true light uh, in, in terms of being distinguished from false lights, we also are brought to see that Christ is the true light in the sense that he fulfills former lights. So, so this word true, it also has a sense of ultimate attached to it, the Greek word that's used here. So, for example, by the time we get into John chapter 6, Jesus can speak about being the true bread from heaven. The true bread from heaven. And he's speaking about this in the context of referring to, to the bread manna that God provided for his people while they were in the wilderness wanderings after Egypt. And, and if we think back about that story in the Exodus, manna was true bread from heaven. Manna was true bread. It accumulated on the ground every morning. The people of Israel collected it. They ate it. It sustained their life. It was true bread. It was, it was genuine food from heaven. But, but, but see, true has another sense in that it can also point to something ultimate. Jesus is the true bread from heaven and that Jesus is ultimately the one who comes down and brings life to us, delivering us from the bondage of sin, from the condemnation of death through the cross. He's the true bread and that through him we are ultimately sustained for life. So in that sense, there's ultimacy. Manna was true bread from heaven, we, we could say that. But here Jesus comes along and speaks in ultimate kind of terms about the sustenance he provides for us in our time of need. Right? Or take what Jesus says in John 15, where he's the true vine. Right? Well, in the Old Testament, the Lord refers to his people Israel as his vine. Israel is uniquely selected by God. His promises are there to Abraham, and he has this chosen people. He speaks of them as a vineyard planted on a fertile hill in Isaiah 5, or a vine brought out of Egypt and planted in good land in Psalm 80. The people of Israel were the vine of God, brought out of captivity to bear fruit. Jesus comes and he says, I am the true vine. It's not that Israel was the false vine, but Jesus is the ultimate, the climactic one, the fullest expression of God's fruit-bearing purpose is found in Jesus. Right? 
So true has more than just a sense of genuineness attached to it. It also has this ultimate sense attached to it, which we then need to take and understand the statement about Jesus being the true light. So now if we're thinking in this ultimate kind of way, Jesus isn't the only light from God. Say that, and now let me explain. For example, we read in Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet. Maybe you know this verse, and a what? And a light to my path. Right? So, so the revelation of God in our Bibles is a light from God. It, it, it reveals God's path of life to us. It, it reveals God's truth to us. However, Jesus is the climactic light, the ultimate light, the, the truest form, the final ultimate form of God's revelation to humanity is found in the person of Jesus Christ, to whom the scriptures are always witnessing from the very beginning. And so, and so again, this ultimate sense is here, as John brings us to consider not only the, the uniqueness of Jesus as genuine light, he's not going to lead us astray, his light is real, and it will bring us to light. But he's also ultimate in that the revelation of God is climaxing in him. The purposes of God are climaxing in him. What, he, what God has promised to do for his people is reaching its highest expression in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His teaching, his providential care, his, his death and resurrection, of course. This is where genuine real life is found in a climactic way. And so with that... As we get into John's gospel, which is something we're going to encounter again, again, and again, we do have this uh, immediate inclination that we're being introduced to this one that allows us to stop searching. Right? To, to find the kind of illumination that, that animates our existence and leads us to a place of true life that even transcends death's dark claims on us. To find that kind of illumination, we need to look no further than the life that is promised through Jesus, He's ultimate. And that's something that's important for us to consider well, especially as we remember John's gospel's priority is that we would believe in Jesus. His goal, as he says at the end of the gospel, is that we would believe in Him, have life in His name. That's the direction John is pointing us. And we get partway through the gospel, maybe, or even maybe partway through our Christian life, this can happen. And, and, and we start to wonder, you know, am, am I missing something? Is there a piece that's not, that's not there that I need to add in? Is Jesus really the fullness? Is he, is he really ultimately what I need, full stop? And as that kind of question comes into our minds, we can go back to a place like this and remember, oh wait, Jesus is the true light. He's the ultimate revelation and source of life who offers everything to us. This kind of a temptation to think we might need to add things into Christ to really be whole and full, this is something that Paul addresses in his letter to the Colossians. They're thinking, maybe I need to add in some, some special diets, some special religious days, some special religious practices to really have the fullness of the Christian life. And we can think in categories like this, to really live the full life, I need to have this piece added in and that part added in. And what is Paul's great burden to the Colossians? It is that Jesus is absolutely supreme and that in him you're completely full, you're completely free, you're completely forgiven, and there is no one else or nothing else that you need. And John's getting at that right here. In Jesus, we have the ultimate revelation of God, which brings us from death to life. And so true has that sense as we, as we think about it here. 
Which is why, of course, we can sing the lyrics that we sing even as we started the, the service today. So onward to eternal glory, to my Savior and my God, I rejoice in Jesus' victory. And then what's the next line? It was mostly done on the cross. No, it was finished upon that cross. Complete, total, ultimate work is done. I need look no further and I need not be distracted by any alternative lights as, as seemingly friendly as, as they may be. Okay, so Jesus is the true light. That's the first part of verse 9. Now, uh, let's keep working through the verse, and we see that Jesus, the true light, he's also described here as the one who gives light to everyone. And that's not a, a new idea here for John in the prologue either. John, John is the thing here, though. When, when John is speaking here, I'm sure we get it. Um, and, and, and it is worth just mentioning here, though, when, when John is speaking here of Jesus giving light to everyone, He's not speaking about a kind of universal salvation, that just everyone is going to be saved and, and, and it doesn't matter what we believe or anything like that. In fact, the next set of verses is going to make it very plain uh, that, that, is, that it's not enough uh, just, to, just to think that we're from the right family or, we're, or we, we hold some of the right thoughts or we have the right desires. No, no, belief in Christ is something that we come to as God grants us this, this new life. So John's not speaking here about universal salvation. Instead, he's referring to what we've already touched on in earlier studies and that Jesus is the light of life who animates all humanity. And we've seen that already. We've talked at length about it. Um, the, the, the light of Christ shines in all humanity in that we've been created through him and, and our abilities, whether they be to appreciate beauty or, or whether they be to, to seek knowledge or desire morality, all of those things, even as broken as they can be because of our sin, in their best sense, those things are all part of our human makeup because they exist through the universal, life-giving, and, and sustaining light of Christ. His general revelation in the world brings light to all. And John has said this earlier. He's bringing that up again. But here, as John is doing in this verse on a couple points, uh, here John is getting a little more narrowly focused. He's already been a little more narrow with the true light. Now he's going to get a little more narrow with this as well. And, and to see it, we have to translate the text a little more literally um, if, if we're just reading our English translation at face value, at least the CSB, which is what I'm reading from here, uh, it might seem like, like John is saying, the true light gives light to everyone, plural, right? And that's, that's true, obviously that's true. But John's actually more specific here in his language in that it literally reads, the true light that give, gives light, to, that enlightens each person. There's individually an emphasis here. It's singular. And we touched on this in our pre-reading studies of John, but, but here we have the first real instance of the individuality that John emphasizes in his gospel. So the light of life that is in all humanity generally, that, that comes through Christ. But here John is getting down into specifics and he's saying the light of life that's in you personally comes from Christ. You see, this, this Logos figure, the eternal word, the one who's fully God, who existed before all beginnings and through whom all things have been made, this one is the one who is intimately connected with your very personal existence. He's not a high and removed deity spinning the world and, and like a cosmic CEO in his corner office, he's just worried about the big picture. No, no, you breathe, you think, you have activity in your conscience, considering good and evil, right? You appreciate beauty, all because the light of Christ shines in you personally, each person without exception. 
He's not far off from you. He's, he's animating our very existence. He knows us. He gives us life. This is the light of whom uh, John is speaking. And this, again, is helpful for us because we can easily think in religious categories that are so impersonal. Uh, sometimes we can be thinking that Jesus is a figure to consider if I'm going to be a Christian, this figure I need to think about. Or Jesus is the king of God's kingdom whom I follow as a Christian. Jesus is the teacher. Jesus is the redeemer. He died for all who will believe in him so that we can have eternal life in his name. All of those things are true. All of those things are theologically accurate. All confessionally sound for a person of the Christian faith. But we can think about those things so religiously rather than intensely personally. And so John says, the light in you personally like, like the last breath you just drew, the thoughts that you're presently able to formulate and process and think, the strength for those thoughts, all of that comes through Jesus for you. He's the light of every single human life. Mine, yours. But we're, we're not being introduced to a disconnected religious figure in John's gospel. We're being introduced to the one who is responsible for you waking up this morning. Which in some of our, and, and we won't take time to go down that path because we did. It's intensely personal. And, and we won't take time to go down that path because we did a couple sermons ago. But you just think about what this means for the uniqueness of the image of God in each person. The uniqueness of the fact that we're made and animated by the Lord Jesus himself. Each person you interact with, the annoying person in the office, to, to, the, to the person that you have great affection for, to the person you pass on the street who's struggling in, in, in all the difficulties that we see before us, made in the image of God, animated by the life of Christ, gives great value to all of those things. So there's an intense personal uh, nature that's, that's uh, represented here. And then, and then, of course, the, the truth that Jesus is intimately engaged, it only gets more emphasized in the last part of this verse where we're given this, this great big truth where the light was coming into the world. The light's coming into the world. So he's not transcend, not staying far off, but he's coming in. So let's think about that now. The, the true light, we've got categories for that, the true light, the, the genuine and ultimate light right, that gives light to every person, so the one who animates the entirety of our existence was coming into the world. Okay, this is, this is where things are going to, to become even more extraordinary in terms of understanding Jesus, and partly we're going to have to save some of this discussion for verse 14, when we're told that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, we'll talk about things at, at great length there on, on, on a few different points. Um, but we do see how John is moving from speaking about the pre-existent Christ and all His heavenly and creative glory. You know, in the beginning, the Word was already being. Remember that uh, he, he is God Himself. So all that glory from the create from before creation. Now John is moving in as the light enters our existence. In fact, he comes into the world, and we need to say something about the term world, uh, because again, with John the Apostle, he writes in ways that make common terms almost technical terms. And that's the case with this term world. Um, so, so while world can have a general sense attached to it in, in one or two places in John's gospel, um, like in the end when he says there, there are so many things written about what Jesus did were, were every one of them to be, or there are so many, so many other things that Jesus did were they all to be written that the, book, the world wouldn't be big enough to hold all the books. Remember how he says that? So there's world thinking just like about the bigness of the world. There's one or two cases where the word shows up with that kind of neutral, big meaning. However, for every other instance the word is used, um, as, as one commentator puts it, the term doesn't refer to world in its bigness. Instead, it refers to world in its badness. 
the term world in John, which is used 78 times, just to give you an idea of how interested he is in this term. It's only used eight times in Matthew. It's only used three times in Mark and three times in Luke. 78 times in John. So this is an important term for him. And when this term world, cosmos in Greek, when this term is used, he's indicating the realm of humanity set against our creator God, uh, full of deceit, actively pursuing what's contrary to life. That's the world. The world is a place of sin and darkness. So, for example, in chapter 7, Jesus is going to say, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world does not indicate bigness, it indicates badness. Which makes what we read in verse 9 all the more astounding. Christ, the true light of life for all people, all people, mind you, who have rebelled against Him in their rejection of God and His good way, in in the badness of the world. Christ, the true light, whose kindness uh, preserves us each day, even though we take that breath and we reject Him with the things we say so oftentimes. Christ, the true light, enters into the sphere of our darkness. He comes to the badness, the light comes down. Now, now there's, there's so much to say about this. And again, we're, we're going to be unfolding this subject in, in John's gospel, uh, just even thinking through what a great grace it is that he would come and dwell among us. We're, we're going to save that for a little bit. We're going to dwell on that at great length in, in a couple weeks. Um, but what we want to say here is something about the fact that this light, this picture of light, light is coming down into our world. What does it mean that he would come to us? Well, think about it using, using this illustration to begin with. Um, the Greek philosopher Plato, who lived about 400 years before the birth of Christ, in Plato's writings, he included the allegory of the cave, and you may have come across this at some point as a fairly common, uh, commonly referred to allegory, I guess, the allegory of the cave. But in the allegory of the cave, uh, P- Plato describes people in general as being uh, chained in a cave, uh, staring at a blank wall, unable to turn around, but then there's a fire behind them. And objects pass in front of the fire behind them and cast shadows on the wall. So these prisoners in a cave, they're staring at those shadows on the wall. And those shadows are all the prisoner know, uh, knows of reality, even though they're, they're not reality, they're just shadows. But the, those in captivity there are thinking that these, these must be real because it's what they're seeing. And it's not until one prisoner escapes and climbs out of the cave and enters the bright light of the, of the sunlit day uh, that reality can really be known. Right? And then there's more to the whole allegory than that. But, but an interesting point in Plato's allegory is that, is that it illustrates how we think about true reality and, and attaining the light of life as humanity. As, as humanity, there's, there's an aspect of which we, we all universally recognize that, that we're bound. Uh, we, we're, we're beginning from not where we, where we should be, where we want to be. There's a chainedness to that. We, we have a sense that we're not what we ought to be. And it's not until we break free and ascend getting up to the light ourselves that we'll really flourish. As one writer puts it, we have to, we have to drag ourselves up above the deceived and superstitious masses in search of the light in order to fully realize who we are. And we can identify with that depiction to, to find the light of life you must ascend. This is the human burden. Right? You must climb up and out. You must prove yourself over and over. You must rise, pull yourself up, get yourself over and above the fray. And in an earlier era, that, that rising to the light was thought to be achieved through knowledge. So for Plato, the one who escapes from the cave and attains knowledge is the philosopher. Right? 
if, if, if I just know enough, I'll be able to truly live. In our contemporary age, things have shifted. We, we don't think we'll rise through logical reason and, and knowledge now, but instead we think we'll rise to the true light which brings life through the embrace of my desires. That if I just live how I feel myself wanting to live, and if others have the sole responsibility, not of teaching me or redirecting me, but if others will only support me in my pursuits of embracing what I feel to be right for me, then I will find the light of life. That's where we are at the moment. However, no matter if we're Plato's philosopher in the cave or if we're a modern person seeking to achieve our self-determined potential, no matter the framework, one thing remains constant and it's this. We're working so hard to be going up. We, we must be rising. We must reach. We must lift. We must prove. You just think of all the language that can be around. We must ascend, achieve, be heard, produce, appear very high. We need to stretch to attain all of that. But how has all of that gone for us? If I can only rise to the fullest expression of what I feel is best for me, then life will be found. How has that gone? In a word, badly. We're no better off as humanity than we ever have been. Still bloody war, still broken lives, still human trafficking, still death upon death upon death, still darkness. We have not made it up. Here's the good news about Jesus. With Jesus, everything is different. With Jesus, we're not called to prove ourselves and lift ourselves and work ourselves up to the light in this dark world. With Jesus, the light comes down. He comes to us in our lowness. He comes to us in our shame. He comes to us in our confusion. He comes to us in our lostness. He comes to us in our sin. He calls us to get lower. Recognize and achieve, but he calls us to humble ourselves. He actually calls us to get lower. Recognize the lowness that is true about me and turn to him and find rest and find life because of what he accomplishes. He's the one, a few verses down, who gives us the right to be children of God. We don't climb and gain that right. He's the one who grants that gift to us. And so with Jesus, we see that everything is different. With Jesus, life is found not because we climbed. With Jesus, life is found when we say, oh, I'm very low. But I see you, Lord Jesus, are the one who's come down here to rescue me. This is what makes following Jesus different than every other religion in the history of the world. And for this reason, it's the only one that can ever make ultimate sense when we're, all, when we're honest about our own condition. We find life in Christ because life comes down and rescues us. We don't climb up because we can't climb up. He descends. And we have an awareness, don't we, of how, how contrary this is to our normal mode of operating as humans. I want to be the one who rescues me. And part of that is my proud, stubborn heart. And part of that, as, as we think about it, is because you may be in a place where you've never really had anyone come for you before. The people who should have come for you hurt you. The people who should have come for you left you. The people who should have come for you failed you. The people who should have come for you lied to you. And so I will be climbing out of the cave by myself. Thank you very much. Except we can't. 
No matter our efforts, the darkness of this world grips and grips and grips and pulls us down. And though we climb and climb and climb, we cannot ascend to life. But Jesus, in whom is life, and that life is our light, in Jesus, the light comes down to us. And he comes for us, not failing us, but he comes for us, keeping the word and promises of God perfectly, descending even all the way to the cross, so that all the wrongs we've ever done are wiped clean. And as John will say in the next section, we're actually brought into God's own family as his children. We're at peace. We're assured of eternal life. Never again to be dominated by the grip of darkness. We'll face darkness. But it will never be the dominating force that overcomes us again. So I wonder this morning if you've never had anyone come for you before. We see this in Christ. The light comes into the world. He comes for you and he rescues all who will trust in him. And Jesus so secures you that in John chapter 10, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Total security for life eternal. The true light that gives light to every person was coming into the world. We don't climb up, we can't. But praise God, he comes down and gets us. Let's pray. So Father, we pray that we would be renewed in this truth and be given comfort by this truth. The fact that while we feel our own weakness and inability, the one who exists in eternal glory, who stands outside of all space and time, bringing everything into existence, he's the one who's come down to rescue us and as we trust in him, we find the one who not only promises life, but is powerful enough to bring us to that sustained and secure place of new life, renewed life, transforming life, and a life that actually exists beyond the reach of the grave. We praise you for that, and we ask that we would be trusting in Jesus all the more today, ultimately for his glory. Amen.